Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Uh, well, thank you so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop um, for caregivers coping with a loved one's metastatic prostate cancer. And this is part two of living with metastatic prostate cancer. Um, and today's program is supported by Pfizer and an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Um, now, I just want to let you know about the participants on the call today. Um, we have over 123 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Colombia, Ghana, Peru, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. And Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genitourinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Neurologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Royal College of Cornell University. And her, she will be discussing caregiving for your loved one with metastatic prostate cancer in the context of COVID, seasonal flu, and RSV. Tips on working with the healthcare team in managing your loved one's pain, neuropathy, and discomfort. And guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments to increase their benefits, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up care, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Slovak. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner, and uh, good day to everyone, and uh, welcome. Dr. Mesner always gives me uh, a list of a very long requests, which, in which I have very little time to discuss things, but I think I can hit the high points. Many of you know that I spend most of my time talking about treatments uh, for patients who have prostate cancer, but I'm going to take a little different tack today and talk about the caregiver. And by definition, that's anyone who is involved in the care of a patient. It could be a friend who's driving you to your appointments. It could be a wife, a mother, a son, a daughter, a friend, anybody who's involved in any aspect of your care. It's a team, essentially. But first, before I, I start talking about that, I do think it's very important for people to know that it is requisite to have your routine yearly immunizations, and that also includes the seasonal flu vaccine, COVID. Whether or not you get the respiratory uh, syncytial virus vaccine is really dependent if you have underlying lung issues such as COPD or recurrent pneumonia bronchitis for which it would serve you very well to ask your primary care doctor or pulmonologist for his or her input. But the point is that none of these immunizations preclude your ability to get chemotherapy, 
radiation or other treatments. So please be very attentive to this. And that is also highly recommended for the caregiver as well. Now, I think it's very, very important to recognize that as a caregiver, you are not alone. I am extremely empathetic with the wife or the sister or the friend or the companion who comes along with the patient because it's a tremendous responsibility to feel as if you have oversight day and night of somebody who has cancer. It is very true that probably 90 to 95% of our patients do well for many, many years and then things may change either due to intercurrent medical problems, uh, perhaps a fall that uh, resulted in a limb being fractured, which puts a, a setback on treatment or even just do it, causing a setback in your activities of daily living by virtue of the fact you have to undergo rehab. But the point is, it's a team approach. No one should feel that they are alone. Uh, I say that because very often I never know sometimes if I'm really treating the patient or am I treating the spouse or the, uh, the health care uh, support person? And the reason I say that is very often I'm dealing with listening to the caregivers, not complaints, but really their fears. And one of the problems that I have to deal with sometimes is that I get distracted in dealing with how to best comfort that person rather than focusing the visit on the patient. And I think in many cases, we are not always attentive to the caregiver's uh, or maybe sympathetic to the caregiver's uh, stresses. And that's where the team approach comes in. And that includes a, a really a very significant support system. This includes either social work. It can include uh, pain and palliative care services. And please keep in mind, when we talk about palliative care, we're not talking about hospice. We're talking about a group of, of people who are involved in many different disciplines who from the moment you walk in carrying the diagnosis of cancer, you will have support. Now, what does that mean? That means there's a variety of different services, whether it's pain, rehabilitation, radiation, anything, nutrition, for example, anything that you might need that will help you make and get through your, your journey in the world of prostate uh, cancer, among other cancers as well. So if I'm seeing a family member in distress, we, we have couples therapies in some cases because uh, you may know that prostate cancer is certainly a disease of the couple. So whatever impacts on the husband will impact on the wife, both sexually and psychosocially. We do have social work. We do have psychiatry. As I said, we have couples uh, counseling. I mean, there's so many different things. And unless you are very vocal at, at the meeting, I don't want you as caregivers to feel that you are left out of, of the visit. I can't, or we as medical oncologists, I should say, can't ignore you, but at the same time, we have to focus our visit with the patient. But if you vocalize that something is amiss, please let us know because we are more than happy to set you up and give support. One of the problems that I face uh, as a medical oncologist 
is that people expect me to be everything to everyone, and I can't. I'm a medical oncologist, and uh, I am not a urologist, but sometimes I end up playing one in clinic. Uh, some people think of me as their sex therapist or their, den- uh, their dental specialist. Uh, I've, been, uh, I've been so many different things to so many people, but at the end of the day, I can't, we as medical oncologists in general, can't really do everything ourselves to help you. That's why we have a team in place. And I wish I had more time to discuss this. I do think, however, that it's very, very important to know that you are not alone. So in this world of technology, which is both beneficial in many ways, but very, very uh offsetting to a lot of people who are not comfortable with new technologies, particularly if you're older and you didn't grow up with that generation. We do know that coming to appointments are very difficult, and that's where talking on the phone could be helpful. There are resources such as cancer care or even social work or the American Cancer Society that can help guide you with agencies that could help get you to your visits. We do have visiting nurse. Uh, We have home health attendants. All of these are perks that 95% of the time are covered by insurance that will be there the way you'll have somebody helping you and helping you navigate your visits to the doctor. Now, in terms of navigating and asking what's the right question for your first visit, I think people are just very overwhelmed. I'm, I'm very often impressed when people come in with five pages of questions at their initial consultation visit. And uh, I, I recognize that sometimes they're getting it from patients who may have already gone through cancer. And, and some of the questions are somewhat, uh, how shall I say, off-putting in the sense that it has no relevance to the patient, but it's it's sort of very, very uh, anxiety-provoking when I have to deal with it because I'm not quite sure, just meeting somebody for the first time, I don't know what the future is going to hold for anybody, especially since we've all been through COVID. So when people say, well, what can I expect in five years? I can't tell you that. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wear, not wearing my, uh, my hat as, the, as, as Lady Susan, the seer. So it's, it's rather difficult. I do want you to come away with some understanding, though. If you have questions and you want to prepare, there's any number of books. I know Dr. Roth, for example, has written a book that can guide you as can calling the American Cancer Society or Cancer Care or any number of different agencies that who deal with cancer who actually can help you negotiate. I know if you don't have, for example, a computer, then it's reasonable to talk to a friend, but remember that your cancer, even if it may be of the same type under the microscope, is not going to necessarily behave the same way that that neighbor's cancer behaves, and therefore treatments may be different. So there's a lot of different ways that we can help you, and even at your first visit, if you don't know what to ask, please be vocal. Let us know what we can do to help you. We're all very user-friendly, and again, we are a team, and please utilize us as such. So I hope I've, I've helped some people. I probably am not helping everybody, but listen, it's been a great time talking to everybody, and I hope this helps. Back to you, Carolyn, and thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Slavin. That was really uh, exceptionally wonderful. And actually, I think that you really set the stage for today's program, so thank you so much. And I think um, there will be time during the Q&A for people to ask you questions as well, so thank you. 
And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Andrew Roth. And Dr. Roth is Emeritus Attending Psychiatrist, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Professor Emeritus of Clinical Psychiatry, Weill Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Roth will be addressing deciding to become a caregiver, the important role of the caregiver with the healthcare team, and the emotional and social support role of the caregiver. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Roth. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a pleasure to participate in this cancer care teleconference for caregivers coping with your loved one's metastatic prostate cancer. I'm a psychiatrist who worked with Dr. Slovin and other oncology teams at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, taking care of men with prostate cancer and their families for over 25 years. And as Dr. Slovin mentioned, I did write a book to help people cope with a prostate cancer diagnosis. But what does it mean to be a caregiver for a man who has metastatic prostate cancer? Did you, as a caregiver, have much choice in that decision? Whether you wholeheartedly agree to take on the role of caregiver or not, I think if you're listening to this conference, I'm guessing that being a caregiver is indeed one of your roles. But it's a complicated issue. So you're going to hear from people of different specialties today, and you're likely to hear some overlapping, maybe a little bit of different opinions, but you're going to get a lot of information from the various talks today. It's not easy to watch a loved one go through the unpredictable physical and emotional changes related to metastatic prostate cancer. And your support is vital, though it's not always easy. Though metastatic disease may mean no likelihood of cure, it doesn't mean imminent death. And even if thoughts of mortality are front and center, one doesn't have to live as if they're dying. But that's what often happens. The challenges that men deal with may be physical and emotional, and may include pain, fatigue, insomnia, brain fog, anxiety, sadness, frustration, anger, or depression. These symptoms can interfere with usual daily activities, which might otherwise provide a break from illness and counter some of the body's weaknesses. Some of the symptoms can be related to coping with cancer, but many can be side effects of the cancer or some of the necessary treatments used for metastatic prostate cancer such as chemotherapy, steroids, or the androgen deprivation medications, the hormonal therapies. And it may be difficult for you as a caregiver to identify these changes, to try to manage them, and perhaps to adjust to a different quality of life for both of you. Both you and your partner may get upset about no longer feeling in control of your own destinies. Hormonal therapies can cause mood liability, tearfulness, and loss of sexual intimacy. Couples often cope with concrete and intangible losses, some of them permanent and some feared, that need to be acknowledged and perhaps prepared for. Good communication can help get through these challenges with fewer conflicts, arguments, and disenchantment in life. However, for those couples who didn't have great communication before the cancer, this can become an even greater challenge. Maybe your partner discusses these frustrations directly with you, or perhaps passively, through moaning, groaning, or TV room seclusion. And maybe they don't always want to let their oncology teams know how badly they're feeling, which can put you in a bind, making you feel more isolated and helpless, 
but also feeling responsible for your partner getting good care. It can be helpful to ask the medical team about the range of side effects that are expected from the current and past treatments and the range of timelines for recovery in terms of intensity, speed or duration, quality, and completeness, or the lack thereof. How will we know if he's getting better or worse? Caregivers understandably feel that if the medical team doesn't know what's happening, they can't help and they may inadvertently do harm. Some men want their partners to handle those discussions during medical visits and others may feel mortified. But it's very important to discuss this with your partner before the visit so you're sure that at least you're on the same page walking into the visit. Sometimes a caregiver will alert the team behind the patient's back thinking they're doing a service for their partner. And though this is well-intended, this can often backfire with the potential consequence of eroding your partner's trust in your relationship and with their medical team. But certainly, any behaviors that might be considered self-destructive or dangerous must be communicated to the team. You could say something like, I'm concerned that you're not doing much or enjoying much because of your pain or your fatigue and you're not eating and looking thinner, and I worry that inactivity and isolation will get in the way of you getting better. Maybe the team can do something. Would it be okay if I bring this up at the next visit so we can talk this over with the team together? Ask the oncology team whether a physical therapist or a nutritionist familiar with metastatic prostate cancer can be helpful. Think about managing these issues one step at a time rather than making wholesale changes. Many cancer centers have integrative medicine departments that can offer exercise or meditation services as well as acupuncture and massage. And there are usually supportive or palliative care teams like Dr. Slovin mentioned who can help manage uncomfortable symptoms. They are worth checking out. As a caregiver, you can rearrange social engagements to allow for your partner's decreased stamina or increased discomfort. For instance, it's okay to go to half a concert at the Philharmonic or to streamline church services or to just walk up and down the block even for someone who used to be able to run a marathon in the past. Something is usually better than nothing. And with adjustment, some engagement and enjoyment is usually possible. Though some men resist psychological help, many do not especially when recommended by the oncology team. Getting psychological help from a social worker, a psychologist, or a psychiatrist doesn't mean that anyone is crazy. However, it may facilitate better accommodation to a changing life. Psychotherapy can be helpful for both of you, either as a couple or individually, to figure out how to better manage the unwanted changes that prostate cancer may bring into your lives. Lastly, I'd like to talk about the importance of caregiver care. If you become ill, it's going to be much harder to support your partner. Exercise, meditation, or learning relaxation techniques, going to lunch or a museum with friends can be useful. These days, you can find lots of free videos online for easy yoga and other exercise, stretching, or meditation classes. Some of these might actually be nice activities to do with your partner. But if you want to go out with friends and your partner is not up to joining you and you're concerned about your partner's safety while you're out, have this discussion with him. Maybe a friend or a family member can come by for an hour or two 
to give you a respite. Keep trying new ways of discussing these issues or trying out new routines. There may be a more accepting moment even down the road. Thanks for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Roth. That was really um, excellent, just outstanding, stellar presentation, and um, also has given our participants, uh, caregivers on the call, a lot of really helpful information. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos, or Dr. Lupe Palos. Dr. Palos is former clinical protocol administration manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, author and researcher in healthcare disparities, caregiving, and survivorship. And Dr. Palos will be addressing managing family, friends, partners, and traditions, the unique stresses and rewards of caregiving, and self-care and stress management suggestions and tips to promote caregiver resilience. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a distinct honor and pleasure to be a part of this esteemed faculty. And I'd like to thank Dr. Slogan and Dr. Roth for setting the stage and providing such valuable information and guidance to our callers um, today. As a, I, as a nurse scientist, I had the honor of working with oncology patients and their families over the number of years, over a number of years. And I became really interested after a while on what was going on with the caregivers, because I saw the patients coming in, they were very well taken care of. And sometimes I think what, as our speakers mentioned, you know, the, the, the caregiver or the family members or the friends that came along also kind of mentioned that they had some issues going on, but either they were reluctant to talk about it or they just didn't feel um, comfortable because they w didn't want to take the attention away from the patient. But that's when I became interested in what were the challenges that were being faced by our caregivers. So I'm going to just start off, though, with, with uh, a few facts. According to the Institute of Medicine, family members, friends, and other unpaid caregivers are the backbone for much of the care provided to cancer patients in the United States. Caregivers, in fact, are critical to delivering long-term care for patients and loved ones. And that Institute of Medicine report was written in 2009, and it's available for free online if you'd like to find out a little bit more about what they said. Yet what we know now is that the role of the caregiver is sometimes unappreciated. And many family members support the patients at a high cost to their physical, emotional, and financial well-being. Now, there's been a number of factors that have contributed to the rapid increase in the number of caregivers that are needed, including the growing population of older adults and people with disabilities, including those that have the long-term effects of COVID. The longstanding shortage of direct care workers, which we found out reached epidemic proportions when, uh, with COVID, when we saw that there was a shortage of nurses, physicians, and others. And three, we found now, we've known now that in our society, the definition and structure of families is changing. So the expectation that a family member would take care of someone who was ill, a loved one who was ill, is not there any longer. So the current U.S. system of long-term services and support cannot continue to function without the contribution of caregivers. 
So what does the research tell us about caregivers' well-being? Today's family caregivers are often expected to perform highly complex tasks, including medical tasks, care coordination, administration of medications, and technological support, activities that extend well beyond the help of daily living activities, right, like taking someone to the restroom or preparing their meals. It's gotten more sophisticated for the caregivers. And then caregivers also then have multiple roles. They have to go to work full time. They're a mom. They're a dad. Um, They're the single head of household. So putting all of these roles together becomes very stressful for our caregivers. And it's also been no wonder that caregivers often feel unprepared to provide care. They often feel that they have inadequate knowledge to deliver the proper care. And they often feel even though we try that they receive little guidance from formal health care providers. Sometimes we think we're listening, but when we get home, we realize, oh, what was it that that person said? Or how did they tell me to administer this? Or what should I do next? So the combination of these responsibilities, roles, and unpreparedness leads to significant distress in caregivers and their families. Research also suggests that caregivers often ignore their own health. And so they're reporting poor to, health, poor to fair health. It's because maybe they're not going to the doctor as often as they should. They skip those doctor's appointments, especially the preventive ones for themselves, or because they have poor eating or exercise um, habits. So despite these facts, our healthcare systems often overlook the caregiver roles and needs, which can have long-lasting term health effects for both the part for the patients and the caregivers. Fortunately, research also describes several positive aspects of caregiving. A recent National Opinion Research Center found that 83% of caregivers were view, viewed caregiving as a positive experience. They felt that it made them feel like they were giving back to someone they cared for or it made them feel that it, they had a new meaning or a new purpose to life. Some of the caregivers have said that they feel like they're passing on the tradition of being caring for a family member and that by modeling caregiving, their children might be more likely to care for others. So caregiving can bring great satisfaction and strengthen relationships, which will in turn be able to enhance the caregiver's quality of life. So what happens, though, sometimes is special occasions and other significant milestones can often increase some of those negative effects that we were speaking about, especially as we see now these uh, pending holidays that are coming up, holy days that are coming up, special events that are coming up, it starts putting more stress on the caregivers. So I'd like to spend a few moments on uh, sharing some strategies. One of the strategies that I really uh, would like folks to consider is preparing a special occasions preparedness plan. It's very similar to a hurricane preparedness plan. And those of you that have gone through some of those know how important those are. You get a list of all the supplies you need. You get a list of people that you need to contact. You even get a list of where to leave your pets and all the other things like that. So what it, in fact, does is map out how to prepare for a hurricane, but in this case, you would be able to map out how to prepare for special events. The plan could allow then for the caregiver to make some trade-offs in their roles when caring for a loved one during special times, especially when they're far away from the caregiver. So here's a few things that you might want to include in your plan. So determine what can, first is determine what can realistically be done. 
Create a stable and realistic role for you as the caregiver or for the family members. Create new traditions for special occasions. Instead of a large group of uh, group gatherings that you may have had, you may consider holding smaller ones. These types of caregiving, of, excuse me, of caregivers can decrease the caregiver's stress and perhaps then give your loved one, the patient, some more time and a long time to spend with their friends. So they have a little bit of quiet time to talk uh, a little bit more intimate uh, and closer. If your loved one is restricted to one area, make that area the focal point of the celebration so that they feel more included. Decorate the area, uh, you know, whatever you think, or put pictures up of pre- previous celebrations or events that happened. If your home, again, used to be the gathering place for all celebrations, ask others to host the event. It might be time for the next generation to host the event and divide up the responsibilities, such as planning the menu, preparing the food, and cleaning up. These moments are perfect times to bring out old videos or photos of previous celebrations, including um, you know, all types of celebrations, just not keeping it to the holiday that's coming up. You also can take some time to do some storytelling about the good old times. This is a great way to include children, adolescents, and adults. And a word of caution, some of these folks sometimes, especially our younger folks, may roll their eyeballs when you start talking about the good old days, but after a while they're drawn in and they will follow the story and learn something about you, the family, and themselves. And then, of course, there's social media to send out you know, invitations or to share live moments. And those include things like FaceTime, Skype, Zoom, or other media tools. And even though you may not be the expert in these uh, techni- technological techniques, believe me, you have someone in your family, especially the younger generation, that would be happy to uh, be the expert in that area. So in the last few moments, though, I'd like to focus on the caregiver self-care. How many caregivers on this call take the time to practice self-care? It is critical that caregivers, families, and friends keep tabs on their own physical and emotional health. Remember, there's a term called caregiving burden that stems from ignoring physical symptoms such as fatigue, interrupted sleep, weight gain or loss, frustration, anxiety, all of those things that sometimes you wonder, why am I feeling this? And why is it bothering me more than usual? It's because it's becoming a cumulative effect, especially if you do not try to take care of it. So a word of caution. Remember that this caregiver burden occurs when you're in a state of prolonged periods of stress or distress. So try to do something about it early on. Don't wait until you really feel that you just cannot take it one more day. The combination of stress, burnout, and diverse roles can lead to higher to larger health problems. So remember, it's good to try a couple of of things, and here's what I call mini breaks. And it it just helps to get get you grounded and maybe distract you from what you're feeling at the moment. You can try, as it was earlier mentioned, the meditation, the yoga, music. Uh, You can try journaling, just jotting down your thoughts or feelings. You don't have to go out and buy a fancy journal book. If you want to, that's wonderful. But just jot it down on a piece of paper what you're feeling at that moment. And, of course, there's always things like joining a support group or uh, in person or online. But here's some really simple things that you can do. 
you can just maybe take a moment and squeeze your hands together. You'd be surprised how squeezing your hands together can sometimes make you feel a little bit better. You can hum your favorite tune or your favorite song, your favorite uh, jingle. I don't know why, but I remember as a child hearing this Alka-Seltzer tune, pop, pop, fizz, fizz, what a relief it is. I don't know, sometimes when I get stressed out, that thing, little, that little jingle pops into my mind. But it distracts me from whatever it is that was probably bothering me at that moment. You can even just stand up straight and put your feet into the ground. I think that's the most important thing to do is to remember to be kind to yourself. Give yourself some slack. Don't have such high expectations of yourself all of the time, especially during the times that we're going to be coming into in the next few weeks and the next few months. So take time for yourself. Again, even a quick walk around your home or the neighborhood. If you're in the hospital, walk around the room, go down the hall and come back. It'll do you a world of good to just get away for a moment. Find an activity that you can enjoy, again, even if it's for a few moments. And I can't stress enough and echo, again, what my colleagues mentioned. When needed, seek professional help from services like those, that, again, that were discussed earlier. My colleagues and I look forward uh, to hearing from you and perhaps some suggestions you may have for caregivers because, remember, you're the experts. So thank you for allowing me to share these thoughts with you. Dr. Messner, this concludes my remarks. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Pellis. That was really wonderful. Um, and I love this idea that um, uh, during the Q&A, you don't have to ask a question if you want to share um, something that really um, has helped you in coping. Just let us know, and we'd be happy to take your comment. That would be great. So thank, thank you so much. Thanks for suggesting that, Dr. Pellis. And I hope someone will take us up on that one. Okay, and our next speaker is Ms. Dina Smith, and Ms. Smith is an oncology social worker, a caregiver, and a program coordinator at Cancer Care, and she'll be addressing the important role of the long-distance caregiver, and she'll also be reviewing Cancer Care's free programs and services, including our Hope Line and website. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Smith. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you, everyone, for taking the time to be here today. Um, I want to first start off by mentioning that caregiving can look, feel, and mean different things for different people. So I want you to take a few moments to think about, you know, what type of caregiver are you? Are you a short-distance caregiver? Perhaps maybe you live in the same household or in the same town as your loved one. Or are you a long-distance caregiver, meaning perhaps you live in a different city, in a different state, or even in a different country than your loved one? Are you a child to the patient? Are you a spouse to the patient? Or are you a parent to the patient? Are you more of an emotional caregiver, meaning uh, you lend an ear or a shoulder to cry on? Or are you more of a practical caregiver, meaning maybe you transport your loved one to and from appointments, or um, maybe you uh, provide medication assistance for your loved one? No matter what you are, there is no right or wrong way to be a caregiver, and remember that any effort that you are putting into the caregiving process is more than enough. Each type of caregiver, of course, comes with its own stressors. So your relationship with your loved one may change, your daily responsibilities or priorities may change, your annual traditions and get-togethers may look different, 
and you may experience symptoms of burnout, such as, for instance, physical symptoms like fatigue, sleep changes, weight or appetite fluctuations, or maybe even emotional burnout, such as sadness, loneliness, or anxiousness. But please remember, uh, as Dr. Palos uh, mentioned, there are so many ways to alleviate stress. Carve out time for yourself each and every day. And if you're not able to carve out time for yourself every day, perhaps you can set aside time at least once a week for yourself. Be prepared and organized. Ask your oncologist questions. Write them down before the appointments. Bring a notepad with you to write down the answers to these questions. Or you can even ask the provider if you can record the session on your smartphone. In addition, Reach out to any friends or family members. Perhaps you cannot make that doctor's appointment with your loved one and you need someone else to go with them. Or maybe you just need time for yourself. You need to uh, go out and uh, spend some time with yourself or your friends and you need respite care. Ask a friend or a family member to come over and help one out while you're out enjoying yourself. That is not selfish. Also remember to exercise and eat healthy. Uh, maintain your own physical health by um, uh, keeping your own medical appointments. Please seek counseling, group counseling, individual counseling, or even peer matching counseling where you can speak to someone who has perhaps been in a similar caregiver position as yourself. Practice meditative exercises. I know uh, meditation and journaling can sound uh, uh, can sound very difficult, but they don't have to be. You can even attempt a three-minute meditative exercise on apps such as Headspace or Calm, or you can even find very short journal prompts online. Lastly, say yes to yourself and say no to others. Self-care is not a selfish act. Sometimes you do need to set aside that uh, one hour even per week just for yourself in order to recharge your own battery. I also want to take the time to acknowledge that long-distance caregiving in particular could be as, if not more, difficult than short-distance caregiving. You may not know how exactly to help your loved one if you're not in that particular area. You may experience guilt for not being physically present with your loved one all the time. You may not be familiar with the local resources available for your loved one. And you may experience burnout symptoms too, which are even valid for a long-distance caregiver and oftentimes does occur. But please remember that there are so many ways that you can still help as a long-distance caregiver. For instance, set up care for your loved one through platforms such as My Cancer Circle, Lots of Helping Hands, or even Meal Train. Phone in when your loved one goes to doctor's appointments or FaceTime in if the doctor feels comfortable with that. Research and set up practical and emotional resources for your loved one. And set up check-ins via FaceTime, text, phone call, or even Zoom with your loved one, whichever platform they feel most comfortable using. Remember, all forms of caregiving aren't easy, so please be patient with yourself. I invite you to consider, even after this session is done, what are three admirable qualities that you have learned about yourself while caregiving? Lastly, Honor the sacrifice that you have made for your loved one and reflect upon how your values may have changed or stayed the same over time, over the time that you have been a caregiver. 
And lastly, I do also want to mention the cancer care resources that are offered because cancer care can help with long-distance uh, long caregiving. Uh, first and foremost, we do have limited forms of financial assistance. We do have counseling, resource, uh, counseling options both for New York and New Jersey residents, um, even for caregivers. And if you live outside of New York and New Jersey, you are able to register for our online messaging-based support groups. We also offer community-based programs, coping circles, and educational workshops such as this one that you're in right now. We also offer case management services, a lot of very helpful, uh, easily digestible educational material. And finally, if we ourselves are not able to help you with a particular stressor or perhaps um, maybe we do not offer the resource that you need, we are more than happy to find that resource for you at a different organization. If you would like to learn more about these cancer care services and resources, you can look on our website at www.cancercare.org or you can call our HOPE line at 1-800-813-4673. And with that, I will turn it back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Smith. That was an outstanding presentation. Just wonderful um, information for our participants. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And now we're going to move right on to the Q&A. I'm going to ask Regina to bring all of our speakers on board. I'm going to take as many of your questions as possible. Regina? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time we will take questions from the web only. You may submit mm -hmm. questions by clicking Ask a Question. Um, so. This is a question for um, Dr. Roth. What, what do you do when your loved one's personality changed and is different and difficult to live with from his prostate cancer treatments? Um, it's, it's a common issue and an important question because I think there could be a number of reasons why uh, caregivers will notice um, personality changes. Sometimes it can just be a reaction to the situation, but very often it might be related to um, some of the treatments or to the cancer. And so I think the first step is to bring that awareness to the oncology team um, so they can try to help figure out what's going on and maybe come up with uh, some ways of dealing with it. I think um, being, you know, being able to address it with um, your partner is important, um, but how you uh, address it, um, it can lead either to some resolution or to some more arguments. So I think it's a, it's a, a difficult issue, but one that um, you shouldn't just chalk it up to, well, this is what happens when someone gets cancer. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, and the question for Dr. Sloven, what are some questions I should bring to um, his next visit with his oncologist? That's a bit of a loaded question because it really depends on what is the stage of the cancer and where are you. If you are somebody who is newly diagnosed, you may want to ask about what the standards of care are, uh, the pros and cons of one treatment over another. If you are interested in uh, 
knowing about how the what the side effects are that should be discussed and also is it okay to wait does the treatment have to be initiated immediately uh, it's also uh, people also ask about nutrition and should they be following a low fat diet and then of course we have this constant discussion of whether or not somebody should have dairy or should they have or exclude sugar from their diet, neither of which I recommend in any case. Uh, if you have metastatic disease and you have failed one therapy, uh, know that life doesn't end, that there are other treatments. And you, can, you should always ask about clinical trials. You are not essentially a laboratory rat, which is what people seem to think they become if they go on a clinical trial. 90% of the time, you're dealing with drugs that have already been FDA approved but are given in novel ways or in novel combinations or on novel schedules. So that is something that one should always keep in mind. But don't be afraid to ask any question, there's no question that is quote unquote stupid as very often patients refer to it, or questions that are inappropriate. That's why you have a doctor to deal with all of the, all the things that are troubling you. I hope that's helpful. Thank you, that's excellent. Um, and it's Dr. Roth. Um, my husband is resisting going to the doctor even though he knows there is something wrong. What can I do to encourage, to help and encourage him? Um, I think uh, it, it's useful to um, uh, validate what might be happening, which is to understand that he may be scared to find out that something is wrong, but if it just goes unidentified and untreated, um, it may just get worse as opposed to just hoping it gets better. Um, and so offering to go with him to ask the questions with him may help give him some of that support to say we're going to address this together and we'll deal with whatever the doctors come up with, but at least that gives us a chance that this may get better. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and we have a participant here who's given us a list of resources. Um, so had taken Dr. Paulos' suggestion. So it has a list of resources for patients and caregivers at hand, including peer mentors, connect with nature, gratitude journaling, online resources for respite care, art therapy, groups at cancer support community centers. So that's another resource for people to look out for, and that sounds like an excellence. Thank you so much for that. So this is for Dr. Paulos. I've been taking care of my husband during his treatments. My family has invited me over across the country to visit my mother and other family members for an extended weekend trip. I'd like to see my mother, but my husband does not want, want me to go and has encouraged me to go. Uh, well, let's see. I'd like to see my mother, but my husband does not want me to go and has encouraged me to go on my own. I just don't seem to get, doesn't seem right to leave him for too long. I've only ever been gone two to three hours at a time since his diagnosis. I feel guilty. What should I do? Dr. Paulos, would you like to comment on this? Sure. That is a really um, hard decision. Those are some hard decisions to make. But again, I, I'd like to remind the caregiver who sent that in that 
your husband is going to benefit from you getting some time away and being able to surround yourself with people who will love you and nurture you and kind of give you some extra gasoline, so to speak. So that way when you come back, you, you'll be able to share some of that with, with your husband. Now, as far as you haven't spent time away, I'm not sure when that trip is scheduled for, but what you might want to do is kind of start practicing, like you're preparing for a marathon. Instead of the two or three hours, maybe four or five hours, you know, and then maybe a whole day, uh, go do some activities with your friends and things of that nature. Or you can even then try doing a weekend with someone that's close to you, friends or family members. The other thing that might come up, you have to respect, you don't have to, I didn't mean that, but it's good to respect what your husband's wishes are. If he does not feel like going, then, you know, he may have his own reasons. So think about who you could trust to either stay with him or to check on him or to keep him company during the day. And I'm not just talking about, um, you know, someone that you hire, but family members, friends, anyone that knows you or has been in your circle will know that you've been taking care of him and that it's time, that you need some time. And so unless you ask, you won't know who would be willing to do that. And I have found that when you ask folks to help for something, they will help if you're very specific about what you think you'd like for them to help with. So uh, hopefully that will be that was helpful information. And I'd like to invite Dr. Slovin and Dr. Roth to um, and, and Ms. Smith to also provide any thoughts they may have on that. Yes, thank you very much. I, I've just been very quickly ruminating through my through my experiences. You know, it, we're living in a very different world where we are now able to use iPhones, and unless the caregiver doesn't have an iPhone, uh, it would be very unusual for somebody not to have one these days. But the fact of the matter is one can always do Skype or just have a tele... I don't want to call it a telemedicine, but, you know, FaceTime with the loved one. Uh, I would also point out that every now and then when people are on hormones for their prostate cancer in addition to other treatments, they tend to get a little bit uh, self-centered and saying and have, unfortunately, moments of the poor pitifuls of, well, if I can't go, nobody else can go. And that really does put the burden of guilt on the caregiver who feels that the patient can't be left alone. And unless somebody is grievously ill, where you are needed for continued medical assistance, there's absolutely no reason that you should not consider going. And sometimes we've had patients go to a facility for a week or so, a nursing facility where they can have uh, unlimited care while you're away. And that's another option as well, particularly if there are unmet medical needs. So I think we we really need to know, is it because the patient just doesn't want to go or is fearful about being alone? There, There are many, many reasons for it. And I think you need to sit down and discuss with your husband what the concerns are. Andy. Um, I, I'm not sure that I have anything new or different to add because I think it, it's complicated. Um, and I think having uh, a support system that allows a caregiver to be able to take care of themselves is important, it, but it doesn't always exist. And so um, trying to think of backup plans 
um, ahead of time uh, is uh, helpful. Um, and uh, I think, you know, we're talking about respite vacations which, uh, or, or visits away, which are important. But I, what I've also seen that is concerning is that sometimes caregivers don't allow themselves to really take care of themselves medically. Um, if they need to have surgery or to go into the hospital, what would you do then um, in terms of taking care of your partner? What, what kind of um, supports would you then put in place? And if you can find those supports for um, something that is more emergent, maybe you can also find those supports for something like um, visiting family out of town. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Ms. Smith, do you want to add anything as well? I think all of my colleagues have really covered it very well. I mean, the only thing that I would add is, you know, considering maybe asking yourself, you know, why do you feel uncomfortable leaving? Um, and you could take a few minutes to even just, you know, take a pen and paper and write down the reasons why you feel uncomfortable leaving. Um, and understanding those and putting those down on paper will maybe help you realize, you know, what's kind of holding you back from, you know, going and practicing that self-care, meaning going on that vacation and seeing your mother. Um, is it that you feel like maybe you can't provide the care um, or no one can provide the care as well as you? Or for, for instance, is it that you're worried that your loved one maybe will have a fall and you're not going to be there? Um, putting everything down on paper, putting your worries down on paper will maybe help you understand um, who you need to talk to in order to alleviate those worries and maybe what, uh, you know, what resources you need to set up for both yourself and your loved ones so that you can take that step um, in the right direction, taking that vacation for yourself, recharging your battery, um, which will hopefully help your caregiving experience, you know, when you come back from vacation. Excellent. Thank you. Um, thank you. And I want to thank all of you for um, um, addressing this question because it's an important one. Um, so thank you. And I hope this has helped our participants. Um, I do want to now ask each of our speakers to just provide a takeaway um, from today's program. So starting with Dr. Slobin, then Dr. Roth, Dr. Palos, and then um, Ms. Smith. So um, do you want to go first, Dr. Slobin? Just yes. Takeaway. So my, my, my takeaway really is that you not be shy as a caregiver to ask questions and to be aware that we have a whole care team that is not only there to help the partner, but also to help you. And therefore, I, we're not mind readers, so if there is any distress, please let the doctor know and we can take it from there. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Dr. I think uh, communication is really important. It's not easy. Um, but to, treat, to try to keep uh, looking for ways of discussing things that might actually be difficult, especially if there are, um, uh, if you notice there are changes in personality or changes in mood, um, and, uh, and to not be afraid of asking for support. I think um, it's, it's not easy, but it's an important thing, and it's important to try to take care of yourself as well so you can be a better caregiver. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Paulus? I would uh, encourage folks to remember that stress is a normal 
process of just everyday living. And uh, it's going to be even more fun with stress in the next couple of weeks with all the events that are coming up. So I'd like to remind you to be kind to yourself, be patient with yourself, and you might even begin by giving yourself a hug. Um, sometimes even a self-hug may be the only hug that you get for the day. So that at least will give you some reinforcement on the strengths that you have within yourself. It's a great suggestion. I hope everybody is giving themselves a self-hug right now because all of you who have been on this program today, your caregivers, and you've, you've been on the program, and so you, you all deserve a self-hug. <laughs> That's a great suggestion. And Ms. Smith? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think, you know, you all being here today um, are taking the necessary steps to ensure that you're taking care of yourself. You're learning more about your loved one's diagnosis and learning more about how to be a better caregiver. And I think it's really difficult um, to take the time for yourself that you need and deserve, um, especially those long-distance caregivers. I know it may not feel like you're um, uh, helping as much as you want or should, but remember you are doing everything you can and more. Um, and please remember to take uh, the necessary steps for yourself, kindness and patience, as Dr. Palos said, um, especially during the holiday season, as it can be very joyful but also a stressful one. Um, so please reach out, especially to cancer care, if you need any assistance with that. Excellent. Thank you. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been phenomenal, and, and our participants as well, because you've asked such wonderful questions. And although we have offered this program before, um, I have to say the questions um, were so much more on a whole different level, and our speakers, of course, gave them a chance to address your questions. So um, I just want to thank everybody. I do want to acknowledge that there are many questions left in queue because we actually couldn't get to everyone's question. Um, so I do want to comment on that. So for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question that's in queue, and for those of you who have a question that you're thinking about asking, will all of you please go back to your healthcare team. You've learned something on today's call. And ask those questions of your healthcare team. And ask your questions over and over again of your healthcare team. There are lots of resources in the facilities where you're being cared for. And you'll be getting information about um, getting help from uh, Cancer Care and the American Cancer Society and many other organizations that we will list for you to get help from. So we want you, to, particularly during this time, to not feel alone. This is uh, kind of a holiday time of year, which does add, a whole, as many of our speakers have said, adds a whole level of stress for each of you. So please recognize that. Take time to hug yourself, to be kind to yourself, and uh, to not feel alone to know that you're now part of the community of support and we are all here to help you. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.